conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a great new merch company, Dynamite Goat Trading Company. It's by my friends over at Disney Dependent, James, Ash, and Sarah. They are putting out some very, very fun Disney-related designs. If you are a fan of Disney World, they currently have an Expedition Everest design. They have a Dynamite Goat design for their company logo, and they have a bunch of great stuff coming. I've had a chance to get a sneak preview, so I can guarantee you that these are fun designs and expect a lot more from them in the future. If you're interested, check out their Etsy shop. There's a link to it in the show notes. And now let's get into the episode. Today, I am joined by Erica Schultz, and we are talking about The Deadliest Bouquet, which is Erica's Kickstarter. There's two weeks left by the time you're hearing this, if you are listening the day the episode comes out. But Erica, how are you doing today? I'm alive. I am kicking. The sun is not out, but that's okay. I honestly don't even know if the sun is out here in Colorado. It might be. (laughs) You never know here. But I've been really interested in comics that have been funded on Kickstarter lately because, well, one, they're taking all of my money. So (laughs) sorry. No, I love it. It's great. And then I forget how many I backed. So things just show up in my email as PDF comics or physical things show up. And I'm like, Oh, look at this little surprise that I bought for myself six months ago. (laughs) Yeah, it's like mail candy. You know, you go to the mail, you go to the post box, and it's like, Ooh, something's here. Yeah. So to dive into your current Kickstarter, The Deadliest Bouquet, you're at just over 600 backers at the time of us recording this. You're almost to $21,000. So you're already funded. Congrats on that. Woohoo! Thank you. Before we dive into a little about what the comic is about, though, I want to dive into sort of the process of kickstarting a comic, because I think this has become a more viable option, especially over the last year or two. That really seems to be when I started backing a ton of comics on Kickstarter. So for you, what led to the choice to use Kickstarter as a way to fund this comic? I had been working on this comic for a while, and um, I had brought James Emmett in uh, as the editor. And when we were originally, you know, working on it, we had a publisher in place. And uh, then COVID hit, and the public, like, nobody knew what was, I mean, let's be honest, we're like, what, 16 months in, and nobody knew what was going on. I was like, oh, it'll be a month, it'll be two months, whatever. So um, uh, a lot of publishers pulled back on stuff, and this publisher was actually one that did so as well. Um, So they pulled back and said, okay, well, um, we don't know what's going to happen, so we're kind of rescinding the green light, for lack of a better term. And I mean, it was a, it was a pain and it was like, man, that sucks. But, um, I had, you know, I was of, of two minds about it. First, I was thinking, okay, well, let's, you know, they're saying they, you know, the infamous they, you know, they're saying it's going to be, you know, two months, we can hold off for two months. And then James said, you know, why don't we do Kickstarter? And at the time, I think he was just wrapping up the Kickstarter for I Am Hexed. I'm not in he was either just wrapping up or still in the middle of the Kickstarter for I Am Hexed by Kirsten Thompson. And um, he 
had you know he's had a lot of success with Kickstarters before. He's run them for I Am Hexed and for other uh, indie books. Um, he's run them for companies, so he has a lot of experience with it. And uh, and he said, you know, we could definitely do this. So we went back and forth about whether or not we were going to do it as a five issue series or if we were going to do it as an OGN. And I thought I was like, I'm not going to go through five months of like biting my nails, you know, to check the Kickstarter every 14 seconds. Let's do it as an OGN. So I had, when I had done the first Kickstarter that I did back in 2019, it was for a book called Strange Tales that I did with Claire Connolly. And so I had got, I had gotten uh, Greg Pak. He has a great book about Kickstarters on his website. So I got that and I read it thoroughly. And then this time I sort of skimmed it. And I will say this, that if anybody wants to do Kickstarter, go to Greg's website, gregpak.com. Um, Greg is a fantastic creator. And in, in the sort of shop link or store link, uh, Greg has a book called Kickstarter Secrets, and it is absolutely invaluable. And I always suggest it to people because for two reasons. One, uh, it will either empower you and really give you like the sort of gas to, to do this Kickstarter, or it will scare the living hell out of you and make you acknowledge that you're not ready to do it. So you have to be like super prepared to do a Kickstarter and Greg's book is going to help you assess where you really are. And I think it's like totally, totally important to do that. So yeah, so James basically said, we, I think we could definitely do this on Kickstarter. And so, you know, I, I, I don't call it blind faith at all. I mean, James is a proven editor, proven creator, um, and I've worked with him before and he's fantastic to work with. So uh, we started working on the plan for the Kickstarter. Um, the other reason why uh, doing it by Kickstarter as opposed to waiting for the publisher was also because I had been working on the project for a while, you know, on and off. And my brain kind of said, like, if you if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. You know what I mean? So it was one of these things of like, you know, just just do it, because if you don't, it's going to literally you're going to put the notebook back on the shelf. You know, it's going to collect us for another three years, four years. So you don't want to do that. You want to be able to, like, just go through it. And so, yeah, so we just sort of powered through and uh, we've got 17 days left. And I'm not going to lie. I'm currently checking. <laughs> I'm currently refreshing the page. I will not lie. But yeah, we have um, 17 days left and we have 601 backers and we're just uh, we're uh, just under 21,000. That's amazing. And I feel like Kickstarter is offering creators an opportunity that not all creators would necessarily have because, you know, you've worked with some bigger name publishers before. So you are maybe a little more aware than some other creators of what it takes to pitch a comic to end up working with the big two and things like that. But, you know, not everyone is going to one be successful pitching companies like Image or Black Mask, Dark Horse, you know, these smaller publishers that aren't Marvel or DC that actually do create their own stuff more often. And it allows them to just take this step and you can really figure out, hey, is this something people are into? And at the same time, you know, depending on if you've actually already finished the books and things like that, you aren't really getting in over your head necessarily, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, first thing I do want to say, Marvel and DC don't take 
pitches for anything creator-owned. Right. And and I think that sometimes people don't realize that. And also they don't take pitches from people that haven't been asked to pitch. So I know everybody on Twitter is like, I owe my great Spider-Man, my great Batman. You know, they're not going to just take your pitch. Sorry. No. <laughs> and, and I know, and I know that sucks. And I know people don't want to hear that, but you know, sadly it's the truth. What I always think is if you have a book and the book is created or close to created as a writer, what I think you should do, or even as an artist, I think you should put like a chapter of the book on Comixology submit and it's free to put your book up there and use that as like a beta testing platform and see how well it does. The one thing that I have to say about Kickstarter is it's not a matter of just, oh, just put it up on Kickstarter and it's free money. It's not free money because you're going to be doing podcasts. I'm not exaggerating when I say I am well into the double digits of the amount of podcasts that I've done in the past three weeks. I think you are number 39 or 40. Well, I greatly appreciate that because I did see your (laughs) massive list that you sent out for Kickstarter backers. And I was like, oh, look at all these podcasts I have to check out now. (laughs) That's not even all of them. That's the funny thing is that's not even all of them because James and I keep a running Google Doc where like when the new link comes out, we drop it into that Google Doc. And I literally, I was just like, I can't copy and paste this entire thing. So I'm just going to take a couple of them. You're going to have to go on podcasts. You're going to have to talk about the book to creators, to podcasters, to other creators on social media and all this other stuff. I mean, there's a lot of marketing that goes on with it as well. And um, if there were conventions that were going on, you know, uh, uh, more frequently, like they usually do this time of year, you'd be at conventions talking about it. So it's not just, you know, hey, I'm going to put something up on Kickstarter and I get free money. No, 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 no. You work for that money. (laughs) So my suggestion to people a lot of times is, you know, go upload it to Comixology Submit. Blast it on social media. See if people will buy the book and rate it. And this way that you can use that as sort of proof of concept of, is this something that a lot of people seem to want to want? So if that's the case, then maybe you do a small Kickstarter to fund a print run. And, you know, I always say start out small. I know a lot of people are like, go big or go home. That's fine. But if you end up failing, you know, if you, if you, you know, did a Kickstarter for $50,000 and you end up failing, it's going to be a harder drop than if you did a Kickstarter for like $5,000. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, you know, as someone who hosts a couple podcasts and I edit and produce other people's podcasts as a way to make a living, being in a creative field there is no such thing as free money, honestly. And I love that you brought that up. Because even if I were to have, you know, like 200 Patreon subscribers, which I don't, I have 10. So you know, I'm getting like 20 bucks a month to do my two podcasts. It's like, you know, even though that money is great, no matter how much it is, and it allows me to cover like hosting or something, I'm not getting paid for my time to make the social media graphics, post it on social media and do all this stuff. And, you know, for full transparency here, I don't pay my guests to come on the show. You're not getting paid to do this. So for you on your end, it's like, yeah, there's no such thing as free money because you're kind of putting a lot of your own personal time into your Kickstarter that isn't even accounted for in the Kickstarter money. Yeah, I mean, I'm the first person to admit that the money that we asked for for the Kickstarter, we made our money, great. I don't get paid unless 
we make a lot more than our Kickstarter goal. Like I'm not getting paid. I'm going to be real here and not a lot of people want to hear this. And I apologize if, if you get hate mail for this, send it my way. As a comic writer, now I've worked as an editor and a background artist and a colorist, and, and I've done all the bits and bobs of being a comic, you know, of making a comic. But as a comic writer, primarily, um, if you want to get work, you are usually the one who is fronting the money for the art. And uh, I remember it was the first San Diego Comic-Con I ever went to. It was 2012 or 2013. And the first panel that I went to was the Breaking Into Comics Marvel panel. And uh, Axel Alonso, when he was still at Marvel at the time, was there. Sam Humphreys was there. Matt Brooks was there. And C.B. Sabalski were there. And Sam Humphrey, Humphreys was on, on, the, you know, on the stage and he said, no one is going to read your script. You have to put your money where your mouth is and you have to make a comic. And nobody wants to hear that, but that's the truth. And it is the truth. And that's and that's what he did uh, with um, our, our Love is Real, which was the first comic that he did. And that's what I did with M3, which was the first comic that I did. So you're going to have to to find a way to fund it. So squirrel a little money away and, you know, fund those five pages or eight pages, pitch it to a publisher. If a publisher is willing to fund it, great. If the publisher is not willing to fund it, then squirrel away some more money. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Right. And that's why I always say this has to be a labor of love. It's not because, you know, hey, I just feel like doing a comic. No, it has to be a labor of love and it has to be something that you work at. And as someone who doesn't make comics. I've wanted to write some before, but it's just something that I haven't done because I have 8 million other things that I do and want to do. And I think one of the other common things I hear a lot is, you know, well, to use Jim Lee as an example, you're not going to get Jim Lee to draw your comic. So you definitely want to set the expectation to have artists who are kind of at the same level as you. They can still be amazingly talented, but they're not going to cost what Jim Lee costs. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny that you said that because I'm sort of antithetical to that because when I did M3, the artist that I got was working with me at the studio um, is a man named Vicente Alcazar. And this is somebody who worked on Moon Knight and Conan and everything. That doesn't happen. Like what happened with that doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> and for the second issue of M3, we got Bill Sienkiewicz to do a cover. That doesn't happen. Don't use me as an example. I was positioned in a very specific place. I was working in a in a, an art studio in New York City. At the time, I was working on other people's comic books, doing background art and coloring and stuff for other people's comic books. And I was exposed to and introduced to people that I would not have been if I was still working at my advertising agency job or if I was you know, doing something else. But it doesn't mean that you, and this is back in 2009, 2010. So before Instagram was as big as it is, well, yeah. well before Instagram was uh, bought by Facebook. So, you know, you, you went to DeviantArt, you went to Pencil Jack, you went to, you know, there were still sites that you could go to and look for artists. And my, my one thing that I would say is if you find an artist that you really like on like on Instagram or DeviantArt or wherever, or Twitter or wherever, what you do is ask to see sequential art because everybody can do a really good pinup, but you don't want your book to be pinups. You want your book to be sequential art. It needs to tell a story. Yeah, it needs to tell a story. And that's very, very, very important. 
And there are artists that are very young and uh, up and coming that I've worked with that had great portfolios and I would pay them to do sample pages and they would do sequential art pages and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be very good for sequential art. And it wasn't really, the storytelling wasn't really there. And it's no shade on them. They're young, they're new, they're learning. And so I said, okay, you know, I'm paying you for your pages. I'm sorry, you're not right for this, this project, but keep working at it. And I tell them, you know, use these pages in your portfolio and keep working on it. And as you get better, if you want to keep using the script that I gave you and, and keep working at it, sure, send me something. I'd love to see how you've progressed. But you definitely have to tell a story sequentially and you have to know how your panel layout is going to be. I've seen some some art lately that the technique is really good, but the artist had no idea how to lay out uh, a page. And I was working with, I was sort of coaching a letterer on how to letter it because the the heavy lifting was then on the letterer to draw the eye from one panel to the next to the next. Right. And there's obviously a lot of resources out there, too. You have Brian Michael Bendis has a pretty popular book on comics, the Scott McCloud books. You have all sorts of resources, especially with the internet these days. You know, you can find YouTube videos on this stuff. And I know you actually teach. So before we dive into the comic here, just real quick, how did that opportunity with the Qbert School come about? Anthony... Marks, who is the uh, president of the Kubert School, he and I worked together at Dynamite. I I was uh, I was a writer there for a couple of years, and he was my editor. You know, he's a Kubert School alum. When he ended up taking over the school, he was looking to get some other um, instructors, and he asked me about you know possibly working at the school. Around the same time, I had been brought in as like a guest lecturer for a day. And, and, you know, after I gave the lecture, everybody was like, wow, that was really good. You know, would you ever consider teaching? And I'm like, eh, yeah, you know. But a lot of times when you're in those moments, you think it's just talk kind of thing. Right. So then, you know, a couple months went by and, you know, Anthony and I had a, a more formal meeting. And he said, you know, we'd like you to teach at the school. Um, these are the the classes that we think you're, you'd be great for. Uh, and he gave me a few different classes uh, and said, you know, pick you know, which ones would you want to work on? And so uh, last year and this year, uh, I've been teaching uh, writing and illustrate, uh, writing and imaginative drawing and um, story adaptation. So I teach uh, classes for the third year class, the third year and classes for the second year. It's a three-year school. Um, and so, yeah, I've been, I, I've done that the last two years. We just uh, had graduation about a week ago. and. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to see because from these uh, their perspective, you know, ninety five percent of the students are so art focused that they don't really think about writing. And I sort of force them to take writing into not only just talking about storytelling and and things like that, but I force them to take a sort of very technical, you know, hard turn when it comes to to writing. So they wind up hating me for most of the third year. But then, you know, it's it's always great when you're sitting in class toward the end of the second semester and the light bulb goes on and they're like, now I get it. Now I know why you were so hard on us. Like now I know why you did that. And now, you know, because I am not an easy teacher. I'm the first person to admit that. I have very high expectations. 
and uh, especially for the third year students, because that's your last year. You're supposed to step out the door and be prepared to be a professional. So I'm going to teach you like I'm going to treat you like one. It's been a really interesting experience. It's been it's been fun. It's been heartbreaking. It's, you know, COVID threw a huge curveball in, but, you know, we managed. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's just, been, it's just been a really interesting experience in general. I found that sometimes you just need those people in your life who will push you to try new things, get better at the things that you're doing. And, you know, for me, that hasn't necessarily been been a teacher in particular, but instead it's been some of the people I work with. You know, I mentioned earlier that I edit and produce podcasts and I have one guy I work with, Finn McKenty, and he was like pushing me to start a YouTube channel. And, you know, he's been helping me figure all of that stuff out because I really enjoy talking about, you know, comics, movies, TV shows, what have you. And he was like, you know, YouTube growth can be crazy. So you might as well just give it a shot. And, you know, for you pushing your students to just become better storytellers, I think that is something that helps not only in comics, but in other aspects like you doing this podcast, you know, if you are going to talk about your work, you want to be able to just explain your story in a way that will resonate with other people. So I think it'll help the students in particular and a lot of other aspects outside of just, you know, creating a great comic book story. Well, yeah, I mean, I I try, I mean, we have a business course uh, for second and third years. We have like a very well-rounded curriculum at the school, but just me personally, like I try and instill within them this sort of idea of, you know, it's not an easy business. It was strap on your armor and 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 I try and sort of warn them is the wrong word, but I try and expose them to possible scenarios and give them tools to navigate them. I want them to succeed. I told the class this year, I said, you know, I create because I have to. I mean, it's not like something that I do because I want to. Like I literally have to create if I don't like it's like air for me. It's, it's water, it's air. It's literally my lifeblood. And I hope that when I look out to my classroom and come up to my students that I'm looking at kindred spirits and not everybody is going to want to do comics for a living or create for a living. Um, and that's fine, but do my assignments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I do want to dive into the actual comic here, and I have found all of this information super helpful, not only as someone who just loves reading and talking about comics, but as, you know, someone who, you know, I just said I was interested in potentially writing one at some point. It's just a matter of time, because like you said, it's a lot of time and energy, especially if yeah. you want to push it out and get a lot of eyes on it and get people buying it. If it's something that you're kind of just doing for, you know, practice or whatever, then sure, just toss a script in a Google Doc and, you know, get going there. But for The Deadliest Bouquet, you have a one sentence description that immediately caught my attention. And it's in 1998, three estranged sisters trained by their Nazi hunting mother come together to solve their mother's murder. That is just so much information with also not a lot of information, but it's kind of like the perfect sentence to just 
describe what something is about enough to draw people in. So obviously, that kind of ties into what you were just saying about how you want to make sure these students of yours are getting this well-rounded education. And I think just the way this Kickstarter is laid out is like a prime example of how to rope people in and get them excited about your work. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody needs a log line. Everybody needs that one to two sentences to to rope you in. Um, and, and I actually, that's one of the lessons that I do with the students is we take you know, popular culture things, and we try and boil it down to a log line. Because when you're doing a pitch to a publisher, or a pitch to, you know, like Kickstarter, or even if you're at a convention, and you're talking to a potential customer, you need to be able to tell them fast, what is this? You know, what does this whole story encompass? It's important to just like get it out there, get it fast. Um, I am usually terrible at writing log lines. So because this is a good log line, I will probably never write another good log line ever again in my life. (laughs) You've used up your one. I've used up my one. That's my one. But yeah, I mean, I wanted to do a story in the 90s. As we, we learned off mic, you are significantly younger than I am, which is fine. In 1998, I was finishing my junior year in college and going into my senior year in college. Uh, I think I was engaged at the time. Strangely enough to the logo designer of, of The Deadliest Bouquet. Uh, we, we've, re- we've remained very close friends over the years. And uh, yeah, I mean, I wanted to do a story that was nostalgic, but also, uh, you know, rooted in sort of real world uh, the last book that I did was Forgotten Home um, and uh, The Legacy of Mandrake, two books that both had to do with some sort of magic. Legacy of Mandrake was definitely like sort of like, you know, mag- magic magician kind of things, uh, whereas Forgotten Home was, you know, alien magic kind of thing. So I wanted to get back to something very grounded in reality, which is what this is. And um, basically, I wanted to make sure that the murder mystery had time to breathe. I mean, it's really easy to just pick up your phone and get any information you want because you're literally walking around with a computer in your pocket. So I wanted it to be something where the cops had to really work for it, where the mystery wasn't solved within the first four pages, you know, kind of thing. And I wanted it to show that sort of the opposite of what things are now. Like now, if you don't have a cell phone, it's like, wait, what? You don't have a cell phone? (laughs) Yeah. Where, like, what are you, crazy? Whereas then, if you had a cell phone, people thought you were crazy. So I I kind of, I wanted to sort of flip that on its head a bit. Also, I mean, the story with, uh, you know, the family goes back like three generations. And uh, I, you know, to keep it in the 90s, uh, to anchor it to World War II, I had to keep it in the 90s. So I wanted to make sure that sort of the timeline would line up that way. Yeah, it was just such an interesting logline. I was like, I'm backing this. I mean, I I probably already was backing it without having read what it was about just because of your involvement and the rest of your team, which speaking of your team, can you just tell us a little bit about the people that you're working with on this? Yes. Well, James Emmett is uh, our fantastic editor. Uh, Carola Borelli is our line artist. Uh, Gab Contreras is our colorist and uh, Kevin Wada is our cover artist. And um, because we're only doing uh, one 
but an OGN rather than uh, individual issues. Kevin has that fantastic cover that we have. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's still paced like it would be a five issue series, but we're just making them as chapters. So it's still going to be paced and and still going to feel like, you know, your standard sort of five issue comic, but it's already going to be, you know, packaged together at once. I have to admit that I am a trade waiter or a Marvel Unlimited slash DC Universe Infinite waiter at this point because, well, also one, I'm completely out of shelf space. I literally just have a pile of comics sitting on some boxes because there's no shelf space for them. So one of the things I love too, not only about things just coming out as a whole all at once, because it allows you to just really dive into the story and not have that excruciating weight of, you know, a month between issues or something like that. And, you know, I love that a lot of these Kickstarter campaigns are offering PDFs as an option too, because that's not something you necessarily get in a way that isn't tied to a specific app when you're buying, you know, Marvel or DC or even image stuff, honestly, you know, everyone is just like, here's the PDF, you know, read it however you want, you can read it on your computer in like PDF expert or whatever. I personally have like, a third party app called Chunky, where I read all these PDF comics on my iPad. And it's just nice to have a little bit of extra freedom with how you read these comics. The only thing that I that I ask is that when someone gets a PDF, and this is not just for my Kickstarter, this is for everything. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I ask is that when people get PDFs from Kickstarters that they don't put them up on pirate sites, right? Of course. And that's and that's happened a few times. And that's really frustrating. Because like, then I literally want to go through like my backer list and be like, okay, which one of you? (laughs) You know, but yeah, I mean, I think it also it's it's two things. One, it's for the it's good for somebody who doesn't have the shelf space. Two, it's good for somebody who maybe lives in a different country and is like, wow, you know, I mean, I really want the book. But at the same time, you know, shipping prices are kind of crazy. So you know, they still get the story. And, and that's what's important is, is getting the story out there. And what we did with Strange Tales was we didn't put, we didn't put uh, Strange Tales up on Comixology for at least one calendar year. We wanted the Kickstarter backers to have their full access to it mm-hmm. uh, before anybody else. And that's, that's kind of what we're looking to do with this as well. Uh, so we're not going to put it up until a year after fulfillment. So if we were slated to fulfill January 2022, with luck, we might be a little early. I'm not going to jinx it, though. <laughs> um, and so we're, we wouldn't put it up until, you know, 2023, because we want to make sure that, you know, thank you to the Kickstarter backers, you guys, you all get um, like first crack at it kind of thing. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed, because I've done several videos now on Marvel Unlimited, DC Universe Infinite, and I did a comiXology one, I've had people from other countries commenting that some of these things aren't even available in their country, which, you know, for us being in the United States, and there are some other countries that kind of get full access to these things fairly early, we're kind of spoiled in that sense, because I 
have access to almost everything, everything in Marvel yeah. and DC's back catalog at my fingertips for like, you know, 70 bucks a year or something like that, which is the price of, you know, if you go to a comic shop, two or three graphic novels. Yeah. And so for the Kickstarter to be more open in that way to people everywhere, you know, all you really need is an internet connection to be able to back the Kickstarter. Even then, you could probably do it on like 5G or something. You don't necessarily need internet even. And, you know, people can read the PDF on their phone if they don't have a computer, if they only have one device sort of thing. I just feel like it's better for comic book fans everywhere. And I don't want it to be limited to to anybody. I mean, maybe the Martians, I might have to charge them an extra. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I, I want... I want everybody to be able to to enjoy this crazy story about, you know, three sisters that want to kill each other, basically, <laughs> just because of family trauma and sibling rivalry and all kinds of, you know, fun anger things. Yeah. And on the Kickstarter, you're offering extras as people support the higher tiers. And I do have to say, I absolutely love Kevin's cover for this because you see the three different personalities right away yes. before you even know anything about these characters. Yeah, Kevin is so great at acting and and Carola is as well in the interiors. Um both of them are fantastic because like subtle nuances, you know, really can tell you a lot about um about a person and I mean that's that's why like you know, law enforcement will look at a photo and be like, oh, they look guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they're just having a bad day. Yeah. But, you know, that you can see a lot of personality through those, those three sisters on that cover. Definitely. The other day I had gotten some artwork in for uh, chapter three. I was showing my husband a panel from Corolla and he goes, you don't know, you need to know anything about this story to know exactly where each one of these people stands. Like just by the looks on their faces. And that's, that's really, you know, like we were talking about looking for uh, um, an artist who can really draw sequentials, looking mm-hmm. for an artist who can also uh, draw nuances in, in characters. Um, there's a panel in the first chapter that, I mean, it's the most subtle thing in the world, but when uh, the middle sister Poppy is grabbing her daughter, Holly, and she's literally like tearing Holly away from the youngest sister, Violet, um, because Violet's kind of the loose cannon. Um, As as Poppy's sort of tearing uh, tearing Holly away from Violet, Rose reaches out and touches the little girl's hand. And if you've ever been around little kids, if you've got little cousins or nieces Mm -hmm. or nephews or whatever, you're always touching them because you always wanna make sure they're safe. Right. Like you always want to make sure they're like right at your leg and you're always like holding their hand or, or putting your hand on their head or something like that. And so that I didn't write any of that. That was just all what Corolla put in, but it, it's the tiniest little thing, but it adds so much to that, to that interaction. Right. And so, I mean, you really want to work with people. And, and again, I mean, if you are just starting out and you're going to be working with people that are just starting out, you're going to be learning a lot together. So don't expect, like like you said, don't expect Jim Lee art from somebody who's just starting out. But you're going to be learning a lot together. And, you know, talking about sort of silent panels, just using 
facial expressions and and things like that. Talk about like the undialogued moments, you know, the quiet moments, you know, how can they convey um, emotion? How can they convey tension? Things like that. I absolutely love this because one of the most interesting things to me when talking about the process of making comics is sort of that writer-artist relationship. And it's clear that you didn't need to spell everything out in the script for your artist to understand what emotions to convey, what action to convey in the scenes necessarily. Yeah, and I think that's important. I mean, I don't want to art direct an artist. I'm hiring an artist for their talent, for their ability. If I'm hiring a brand new artist who's never worked in comics before, then obviously I'm, I'm not just going to be hiring them to do the work, but I'm also going to be sort of mentoring them and guiding them. But in, you know, however this, I, I don't mean this to sound stuck up or anything, but I, I work with artists who have done the work before. This isn't their first rodeo kind of thing. And so because of that, I don't want to have to art direct you. You know what you're doing. I know you know what you're doing. Like, yeah. And that doesn't sound stuck up to me at all. It's just, you know, from your years working in comics, you've earned that right, basically, to kind of pick and choose who you're working with, what projects you're working on. Because one thing that I've certainly learned is that when you're starting out, you kind of say yes to everything. And maybe yeah. that's not quite the same for comics. But for me, I was just like, yes, I will edit all 1800 of these <laughs> podcasts at once. You know, <laughs> but, I, but it, it is I think it sh still should be the same for comics at the same time, because every single every single, you know, job that you have in comics, even if it's the worst in the world, you're going to learn something from it. Um, and it's going to open up doors to something else. An artist told me early in my career that you're never working on the job that you're working on. You're always working toward the next. You're working for your future jobs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And some people will be like, oh, the only thing, the only work that I've gotten offered is a three-page anthology uh, story. So take that three-page anthology story. Yeah. How many anthologies have I worked on even <laughs> after working at Marvel and DC? I've worked on a bunch of anthologies. There's nothing, you know, it's, there's this like weird, and I guess it, you know, you know, that thing in acting, like there's no small parts. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any small parts in comics because if you really want to create, and it goes back to that idea of like, I have to create. So if you really want to create and someone gives you the opportunity to create, it doesn't matter if it's going to be for, you know, a, a, a small anthology or if it's going to be, you know, the next crossover for the big two. I mean, you want to create, take the opportunity to create. I, I obviously do not advocate working with people or companies that are abusive or of have, you know, anything like that. I'm not saying take any job that comes your way. So I, I, I just, I want to be clear about that because I don't want anybody to be like, well, she said, take any job and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Within reason. <laughs> Within reason. Yes. And the other thing is that, look, I'm assuming that the audience that I'm speaking to are likely adults. If you're an adult, then get all the information that you can. Talk to other creators that have worked with a particular publisher or talk to other creators that have worked with a creator who's looking to collaborate with you. Whatever decision you make, make it an informed decision. Yeah, you still have to do your due diligence to you yeah. know, kind of figure out what's what. And to your point with the three-page anthology, it's like, sure, 
it might not be the biggest job, but at the same time, how long is it really going to take you to do those three pages? And then you have the opportunity for it to benefit you in a positive way. Yeah. So it's like, why not take that? And for artists, and I'll tell you this, for artists, now, obviously, conventions, I mean, there are still conventions that are going on, but they're obviously yeah. much much fewer than, than this time last, and not last year, excuse me, this time 2019 or 2018. But when you go to a convention, when they start, you know, gearing back up to what I would consider, you know, air quotes, normal level, when you go to a convention and you go to an artist alley, you walk down the, the, the aisle at Artist Alley, and what do you see? Print, 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 print. You see print yep. walls everywhere. Everybody with print, whether, whether they are fan art of existing characters, whether they're their own characters or whatever, you just see prints everywhere. What does that tell me? That tells me that you know how to do a pinup. That doesn't tell me you know how to do sequential pages. If you are in Artist Alley, you are an artist, and there are 10 people in Artist Alley with prints and one artist who has two prints in a book, I'm going to stop at that book. And I say this as an editor, because I'm an editor at Mad Cave, and I'm also a freelance editor uh, on other projects. I'm going to stop and look at that book. Because if you're you know, complaining, oh, I only got a three-page anthology. Well, guess what? You get a three-page anthology, that means you have a book at your table. Exactly. Okay? That sets you apart from the Isle of Prints of Deadpool, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman that I just walked down or Avatar, Korra, fill in the bl- one punch man, you have a book. That tells me something. That tells me that you've worked with somebody else. Right. And as much as I, as a fan, love looking at fan art and things like that, it is those people who are doing something different who really stand out at something like an artist alley, even for me as a fan. And I love stopping at those tables and talking to people and just getting to know them and their work. And I know we're talking a lot about process here, but I think it's important for people to understand what goes into these things, even as fans. You know, there are lots of people who are super into movies. And, you know, personally, I have a bunch of like, the art of Star Wars books, just because I love looking at how these things came to life so much. And so for this comic, you can really tell that you have this experience going into it. And that's what I think is going to get people's attention too, because they'll be like, oh, hey, okay, you know, these projects that your team has worked on, like you said, I am hexed and things like that. It just solidifies that you're all a group of people who know what you're doing. And I think that makes people more confident in the final product. I hope so. I mean, there's a word that has been used a couple of times uh, when when I've been talking to kind of like marketing kind of people and it's pedigree. And all I can think yeah. of is, is the animal food, <laughs> like the pet food. <laughs> yes. But what's been said before is like, you obviously have a pedigree you know, you have the people that you are working with, the other the other collaborators that you are working with have a pedigree. They have worked in the business, you know, and, and that's not throwing shade on anybody who's not done, you know, comic work. What that is, is that's just saying that if I'm going to go out and this is, and again, I can only speak for myself, but if I'm right. going to go out and I'm going to ask strangers on the internet for $20,000, okay, I better have assembled a team of <laughs> yeah. professionals, not only myself, 
but the rest of the team being professionals. And we better know what the hell we're doing. Exactly. And that's just me because, and, and that's why I suggested at the top talking about Greg's book. Yeah. Because you need to, to make sure that you have the ability not only to be mentally and physically prepared for it, because it is like a full-time job running a Kickstarter. And, you know, thank God I have James's help. But aside from that, you need to be able to know that people can look at your past work and say, oh, they've done this. They've done that. I really loved that book that they wrote, or I really loved that that story that they worked on. Yeah, this is something that I'm going to back. Yeah. And I know I like to do recommendations here at the end, but before we get to that, is there anything else you want to mention specifically about The Deadliest Bouquet? Um, well, I mean, we are inching towards stretch goals. Uh, we announced earlier today that the stretch goal, our second stretch goal, our first stretch goal is upgrading the paper. And I know that that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it actually really is. Cause like, I mean, not to say that we were going to print this book awfully without the stretch goal. I mean, we were always going to use a premium printer, but this way we'll get like a, uh, an even more premium paper. And the other thing is that when you use a premium paper, uh, a more premium paper, the, the spine of the book is a little bit bigger. So this way I can, it gives me a little more room to design something a little nicer on the spine of the book. That's just my own personal thing. Our second stretch goal that I really hope that we hit at 24,000 is uh, everybody who backs at a physical level is going to get a, uh, a print by Adriana Mello. And if you're not familiar with Adriana's work, please, please, please uh, look up her work because she is a fantastic uh, Eisner award-winning artist. Um, and uh, yeah, she's, she's pretty, she's pretty amazing. And, and thank God she's a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I know I said I don't have any more shelf space. But as soon as I saw the thing where you were like, oh, premium paper, I was like, hmm, maybe I need to not get the PDF and get a physical copy. <laughs> so, you know, things, things like that get me. It really does. But is there anything you want to recommend to our listeners to check out that's either comic related or just another Kickstarter you're really enjoying right now? So there, there is a, a Kickstarter, um, uh, Kat Kalamia or Kalamia, I'm sorry if I'm completely mispronouncing your name, uh, is doing a Kickstarter called Haunting, like father, like daughter. Uh, the first issue is, uh, it's, I think it's 40 pages. Um, is uh, the Kickstarter is going on right now. Uh, Kat uh, does a lot of stuff on uh, comic book Yeti. So definitely check that out. And um, if people are, are interested in the work that I've done, like if they've never seen any of the work that I've done, um, you can either wiki me or you can just go to my website, Erica Schultz Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. And uh, there's a shop. You can check out uh, some of my books there. Uh, everything I have is up on Comixology. Uh, and I have links to the comicsology up there. Um, I've worked on Charmed and Xena and uh, Daredevil and Hawkgirl. So I've worked on properties that people are aware of, as well as my creator-owned stuff like uh, 12 Devils Dancing, which is a horror thriller, um, kind of like uh, Silence of the Lambs kind of thing. And then I've got uh, M3, which was the first book uh, that I worked on, which is a crime thriller. But then Forgotten Home is more of a sort of urban fantasy series. So yeah, so there's a lot of different stuff I've done. And then Strange Tales is just all kinds of crazy fun stuff. Yeah, I'll be sure there's a link to all of that in the show notes. My quick recommendation here is a podcast that you were actually just on recently, and it's Comics Inebriated. <laughs> if you love comics, you have to check out Comics Inebriated. It's so fun. It's hosted by Matt Emmons and 
Liana Kangas. And they're such a joy to listen to. They have fun with all of their guests. And, you know, Erica, I'll specifically link to your episode as well, because it's just so much fun to hear people who are involved, to hear people who are involved in comics talking about comics on a regular basis. Yeah, I give the history of Bucky Barnes. And I had written like a term paper for it. Like they gave me the assignment of, oh, you're going to talk talk about the history of Bucky Barnes. So I'm like, all right. So I'm like literally (laughs) writing like a five page term paper. And um, as we're going through it, they're like, how much more do you have? I was like, a lot. And they're like, okay, but we have to keep this to like a, like to an hour. I was like, oh, okay. So (laughs) and I'm like looking at my, I'm looking at my dissertation and I'm like, okay, well, let me get, okay, I'll take that out. And I'll take that out. <laughs> You're like, wait, we didn't have eight hours? <laughs> Don't give me an assignment. I'm going to overdo it. I mean, come on. <laughs> I love that. Well, Erica, thank you so much for breaking down your process, talking about Kickstarter, talking about the deadliest bouquet. You're already funded. So congratulations. And I hope you hit all of your stretch goals. Yes, so do I, because I want everybody to get that beautiful Adriana Mello print. (laughs) Exactly. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at GeekdomPod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.